can study the ocean, the creatures that live in it, you can dive in it, and you can spend your day on boats. And I was like, oh my God, there is a career like that? That is what I'm going to do. As a woman working in this field, you definitely have some challenges that you face. You know, for a very long time, I always used to be too scared to say I'm the first woman marine biologist, because I always used to tell myself, what if I fail? Welcome again to another episode of our podcast, My Heritage, where we narrate different stories to celebrate the richness and the diversity of world heritage. Today with us, a special guest to share her experience and to get us to dive with her into the depth of the sea and discover the beauty of underwater. Reem Lamala, welcome. Thank you so much. Very excited to be here today. We're very happy to have you with us. Uh, Reem, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what is your work? Uh, my name is Reem Al-Ma'alla. I am a nature lover by default, a um, climate advocate out of concern, uh, and I love diving the oceans of the world. Uh, where do I even start? My journey has started almost over 15 years ago, um, and through that, I've started in the smallest, or I would say the third smallest country in Asia, which is Bahrain, and then branched out to countries around the world. And I'm very, very lucky that I managed to pursue my marine biology degrees in the UK. I did my bachelor's in marine and freshwater biology. I did my master's at Imperial College London in ecology, evolution, and conservation. And finally, in 2020, I got my PhD in marine biology. And so, I'm here today. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. Um, Reem, everyone who knows you might think that the sea is the first passion and the first love that you took your career in. But I believe it was not, right? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely um, not my first love. It was my love, but not my first love. But my first love was also blue. <laughs> so my dream when I was six years old was to be an astronaut. I wanted to be the, uh, the, one of the first Bahrainis to walk on the moon. I wanted to be out in space, bouncing about. I wanted to do so much to explore. I didn't really know what it meant to be an astronaut. But all I knew is you could fly, and no one can actually hold you. And as the years went by, I realized it was quite tough. And uh, I was growing up in Bahrain in the 90s. Like every Bahraini child, the shores was my playground. And when you look at the horizon, the sky, which is blue, meets the sea. That is blue. For I thought, if I can't go up, Maybe I can go down and there would be a secret path that will take me up. Everything was like, everything's possible. Why wouldn't it be possible? They say that the world is round, which means we're rolling in space. So maybe there's an under, you know, ground tunnel that will take me somewhere else. And so as the years passed, um, uh, Bahrain Science Center at the time used to offer an astronomy um, club for children, and I used to love going there and learning more about space, about the planets, about astronomy. However, the program shut down after a couple of years. And then when I was 10 years old, there was nothing more to fuel that passion that I had, you know, for space. I thought it was fascinating. 
Um, I used to play with my siblings in the car when my mom used to drive, and I used to put the seatbelt on and pretend I was like, you know, ready to go. I used to count down as well. Um, but slowly, things started evolving as I kept going back to the shores and seeing how beautiful the sunsets are. And one day, I remember, um, I used to play a lot where Bobco Beach used to be, and I used to see the boats. And I remember thinking, why are there no women on the boats? If I told my dad, I was like, Baba, why are there no women on the boats? He's like, that's how things are, but that doesn't mean you cannot be on the boat. So you can if you want it, Yanni. No one's going to hold you back. And I thought, I want to be a woman that works on the boats in Bahrain. And that started the journey into exploring the ocean. That's amazing. So you started becoming very passionate about the sea, and you wanted to take this field. But I believe that the film Free Willy had an impact in this decision. How was it? Definitely. Um, and it was very funny, actually, because I was like many Bahraini children. I went to a public school. Um, I, I actually graduated from Khawla. And um, I used to be, I think, one of the only students who used to be uh, so excited when we had the module. We had a module that was marine biology. Uh, and everybody was like, why do we have to study fish again? And there was Reem. Oh, there's fish. <laughs> you know, and everybody thought I was very, very strange. Um, and so like many of uh, my colleagues, um, my parents sent me to the British Council so that I can study English, um, so that there was the hopes that we would do the IELTS exams. And so as I was studying uh, English, um, part of the listening uh, classes that we were given, we had to watch a video and we had to answer the questions and answers. Um, well, we had to answer the questions. So. In one of my classes, the assignment was to watch the movie Free Willy. And it was one of the first movies I've personally watched that had to do with the ocean. And believe it or not, I don't actually remember the whole movie, but what I do remember is this one scene that until today, it's very, very vivid in my head. There was the, the, lady, the, the lead lady and there was a little boy in the movie. And so they were getting ready to free Willy, you know, set him out back into the ocean. And so the boy went to her on the day and said, so what are you going to do when we set Willy free? And she said, a PhD in marine biology. And I latched onto that word and I was like, marine biology, what is this? So I went back to class and I said, um, our teacher at the time, his name was actually Mr. Tim White, and I said, uh, I heard about this thing called PhD in marine biology. What is it? And he said, it's a science that you can actually learn and you can qualify. And then you can work in the ocean. You can study the ocean, the creatures that live in it. You can dive in it and you can spend your day on boats. And I was like, oh my God, there is a career like that? That is what I'm going to do. And so that's how it started as well. So working and preserving the nature and biodiversity, how does it align with preserving the natural heritage? So nature and heritage are one. Nature and culture are one. Most tribes, most civilizations, most communities always congregate where nature not only exists, 
but provides all of their needs. Mm -hmm. And so our identities, and I love, this is one of the things I love and I'm very proud of being Bahraini because just saying that I am Bahraini signifies that my identity is connected to the sea because the Arabic word Bahrain literally translates to the two seas and that's the name of the country. So the ocean that surrounds or the sea that surrounds Bahrain is what made Bahrain thrive across time. There's a reason we're on a map, not just because it was a piece of land, but because it's rich in heritage, both culturally and naturally. And so when we look at it from that perspective, then conserving nature is conserving one's identity. And without nature, we don't have an identity. Where do we come from? If Bahrain had no more sea, would I still be Bahraini? Maybe by name. But am I living like an authentic Bahraini, like an authentic citizen of this land? It's beautiful how you put it together. Um, also, you have a very special connection with the dugongs. And when was the first time that you have saw a dugong? So one of the first times that I've first heard about a dugong, believe it or not, was not in Bahrain. Because when I started, the marine biology and conservation world was still very young. So it's not something we learned about in schools, it's not something we would talk about as communities, and it's not something you would even know existed. But that's also typical of we never cherish what we have. We have to leave to cherish what we have. So um, when I did my master's um, program, I had to do a master's placement as part of my thesis. And so I was very, very blessed and very lucky, got assigned a project in Madagascar, which is also an island nation, but it's very huge in comparison to Bahrain. And it was there that I heard about the dugongs. And so they were talking about dugong conservation. They had costumes of dugongs running around. And I was like, this is quite cool. And, you know, and the NGO that I used to work on used to work on dugong research. And they were looking at communities and their perceptions about dugongs. So because I was working in this organization, I started having to do my own research about dugongs to understand more as a young scientist trying to learn about biodiversity in the work that I do. And in one of uh, the Google you know, pop-ups, it said Bahrain, and then the Gulf, and then Dugong. So I was like, Lahla, what? My country has come up? How is this even normal? You know? So I, I looked into it, and it was really exciting because I was like reading, and I realized that there was mentions of Dugongs being in the Arabian Gulf, and that it was the second largest population of Dugongs in the world, and I knew nothing about it. But then I thought, I need to go back to Bahrain because that's where my place is and that is what I need to work hard to protect. But to protect something, I have to understand it. And that's when I realized we didn't know much about dugongs in the Gulf and Bahrain. We only knew they existed. We had a vague idea of the numbers, but we don't know where they go. Or at the time, we didn't know where they go. Where do they sleep? Where do they eat? Where do they reproduce? What is their behavior like? And that sparked not just the beginning of this love relationship with dugongs, but also my passion to protect them. You have uh, different experiences in different countries that has differences. 
How was your experience in Seychelles? I, number one, loved the Seychelles. Of course, everybody, whenever I say I had the like, privilege to be able to study some of the reefs in the Seychelles, to compare them to reefs in Bahrain. Mm -hmm. Because I never wanted to do something in another country without relating it to Bahrain. Because I just felt like I was not serving the way I should be serving to protect what we have for our future generation. So when I went to the Seychelles, I found A, there was a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. And in the differences, I found inspiration. And that has led my journey. So one of the things that was very similar was it was an island nation, exactly like Bahrain. People are very laid back. I think it's an island thing. You know, everyone's relaxed. Everyone is very much atta attached to their identities, which is very similar to what Bahrain is like. But also, almost everybody lives around the coast. And so there is this need to protect their biodiversity and natural ecosystems. And a lot of their economy is completely dependent, I would even say, um, or heavily dependent on their natural ecosystems. And to think that Bahrain's entire economy prior to the discovery of oil was pearling, which built the entire country together, that connection really, really, really stuck very, like it was very close to my heart. And then looking at the ecosystems there from mangroves, from seagrass beds, from coral reefs, that's everything we have in Bahrain. And hence, that also fueled it even more and took me to the next step of looking into the genetics. And that is one of the projects that I've been working on, looking at the genetics of the coral um, symbionts in Bahrain, which is the hottest sea on the planet. And that in itself has a little secret maybe, or like I say, we are the window to the world as to what's going to happen to the rest of the world because of climate change. And there's obviously so many pages to the story, but this is just one small extract. Also, you had a different experience in Africa. Is there any remarkable memory from there? Oh, definitely. To be specific, South Africa, because that is the country I learned to dive in. That was the first time I jumped into the ocean, um, saw a coral reef, and also on my first dive. When I went down, I was scared. I was actually crying behind my mask. I was so scared. And my instructor was like, you need to go down. You need to go down. And I was like, I have a problem. I need to go up. And he's like, no, you need to go down. And he was like, hold the rope and like, you know, let's go. So I went and I was shaking underwater. And, I was like, and then he said, look down. And I looked and there were all of these colorful coral. And I was like, oh my God. This is beautiful, and then the fish would come, and I was like, okay, this is, this, is, this is nice. And I went down, and then 10 minutes later, the light was gone. It was like dark. I mean, you could still see, but like a big shadow. And I was like, what happened to the sun? Is there a cloud, you know? And then I look up, and I see something black. And I was like, what is that? So I was looking, and then slowly I saw it, and it was an eye looking at me. And then I looked, and then I saw the mouth, and it was a whale. It was a humpback whale on my first dive, and I was like, and it was huge. And I was so, like, so surprised, but also I felt like it was also the ocean's way of saying, 
welcome home. And when I got out of my first dive, um, the skipper of the boat, uh, who's the driver he said, of the boat, uh, and our boat captain, he said, I've been taking people out diving here for five years. This is the first time I see the humpback whales coming so close to the reef where the divers have seen them underwater. But I felt like very blessed by that. That's one of my most powerful memories from that. That was a sign for you. Yes, it was digging a sign. into <laughs> the sea. Yeah. Um, definitely, there are, there are some lessons that you have learned from working in these different countries. What are they? You can do so much with little resources. And the greatest resource is, is people and the passion that people have for survival. I think these are my two biggest lessons. You also contributed to the nomination file of one of the World Heritage Sites in Bahrain, the Pearling Path. It has different elements, architecture, culture, nature. How do these together combined represent the heritage? It represents so much, and it's one of the very rare sites around the world that combines heritage, like natural heritage, cultural heritage, the beauty of the architecture that represents the identity of where we are. So we're looking at tangible and intangible heritage. We're talking about, you know, people always like to put like the dollar sign in front of everything. This has to be a price tag. But what we often forget is sometimes there are things money cannot buy. And this is what our pearling path here in Bahrain is not only there, for our future generations to be able to witness and enjoy, but it's there to show the world that although we are one of the smallest countries in the world, we have something that most countries don't, that combines nature, and nature that built our economy, and our people, and our communities, but also what our people did in such a harsh climate or climate environment, how they survived, how they thrived, how they created beauty when they built their homes, but in such a clever manner, whereby the architecture used were techniques to cool houses. So we're talking about engineering that was even more advanced than its time. And now we are looking back at history, looking back at the past to be able to pick out that solu those solutions, combine them with what we know today in science to further develop. Exactly. And how is the nature part has affected your work? You have been working in the sea, Al-Hirat. Yes. Um, so the work, uh, first, when we look specifically at the northern Herat, mm. one thing that, was, that blew my mind was that the Herat area that is part of the World Heritage Site in Bahrain is double the size of Bahrain landmass. So that actually not only signifies how important this is, it also signifies how Bahrain is very much determined to protect its natural heritage. This is number one. Number two, the oyster beds, when we surveyed them in 2012, I'm very proud that I was the only local scientist or local marine biologist that surveyed um, these sites to know that based on the data we collected using scientific methods, it was very close to the reports of the surveys in the 80s. So that also shows that we have succeeded across time in, protect, excuse me, in protecting them. Like we've done 
so much in that. Number three, we're seeing things that have never been documented about pearl oyster beds in the Gulf. What are those things? Number one, the ecological association. So we're talking about pearl oysters, and people will say, yeah, they have, you know, they're on rocks, you know, they need rocky, a, a rocky bottom, and you'll just see so many, and that's it. But actually, no, there are coral reefs, so there are corals that are associated with pearl oyster beds. We have seagrass that's associated with oyster beds, so going back to dugongs and their habitats of seagrass, and suddenly we have our pearl oysters there. That's quite amazing. Very, very amazing. How has this impacted my work? It impacted me in the sense of, I know now that this area does not only just exist as natural heritage, it helps with the quality of water. So everyone using the seas can benefit from clean and good water quality because of these pearl oyster beds, because that's their function in life, to make sure they're filtering the water so our waters are clean. They host our fisheries. We're talking about food security and sustainable development. Our World Heritage Site is providing a space to make sure that we have food security for the future. What else are we talking about? We're talking about homes. We're talking about ecotourism to diversify our economy as part of our economic um, diversification plan. The World Heritage also adds to that. There's so much there. You also recently participated in COP28. Uh, how was it and what was the impact of it? COP28 was absolutely amazing. And the reason I say this is because I was actually present at COP18 exactly 10 years ago when COP came to Qatar. And that was also the year, which was in 2012, Bahrain won the World Heritage Site inscription of the Pearling Path. And that is when the conversation in Bahrain started talking about how do we protect our World Heritage Sites in light of climate impacts. So in that year, the interest in climate change and protecting what we have today from ecosystems, from natural heritage, from cultural heritage, from you know, a lot of things, no one would really look at us. And then when I went to COP28, 10 years later, the region and the world has changed. Everyone is talking about climate change. Everyone's talking about the need for climate impact, address it, to address the climate impact. Everybody's talking about, do you have a strategy how to combat climate impacts on World Heritage Sites? You know, everybody's talking about it. And that in itself, to me personally, as a marine biologist who has observed the evolution of our environmental consciousness in the Gulf, makes me very proud, very, very proud. As a woman working in this field, you definitely have some challenges that you faced. Yeah, definitely as a woman. Um, I am, you know, for a very long time, I always used to be too scared to say I'm the first woman marine biologist because I always used to tell myself, what if I fail and I don't stay? What if, you know, there was someone else who started but couldn't make it? And then as the years got by, went by, I started gaining that confidence to say, I managed to be here for the last almost 15 years. I deserve to not just say it to myself, but to say it to other women in the region that we can definitely be in this field and continue. The different challenges came from, number one, 
being able to find a place, a workplace, as a marine biologist. Because most people think, what do you do as a marine biologist? Just dive? What most people don't realize is marine biology is a vast sea. And one of the analogies I like to use is medicine. So the medical field is huge. You can have a dentist, and you have an oncologist, and you have a surgeon. They're all doctors, but they do different things. So if someone comes and they have heart issues, and you bring the dentist or the oncologist or the surgeon, they'll be like, bring a heart specialist, a cardiologist maybe? And that's the same thing with marine biology. So I'm a marine biologist, but then people would be like, oh, Reem, you're a marine biologist. Come here. What is this? It has nothing to do with coral reefs, and it has nothing to do with pearl oyster beds. I've never seen it before. I don't know. Oh, you don't know? You're a marine biologist? How do you not know? So the challenge of actually even explaining to people that this field is so vast, you cannot expect to know everything, was one of the first challenges. Number two, one of the challenges was people wouldn't believe that I can carry my gear. <laughs> You know, it's like, she can't lift her tank. We have to do it. I'm like, come with me to the gym. Let me show you my deadlift. <laughs> you know, I am strong. I can pick. My, and, but the thing is, what also people don't realize, I don't have to prove that I need to carry heavy. Because I don't have to. My body is different. For me, for example, I, as a woman, attention to detail, is something that women are very no well known for. So when I'm actually out on surveys, it's always me and my eyes that pick out the things most of my male counterparts don't. And they recognize this. So they'll always be like, where's Reem? And especially when we have to go to tight places, it's like, where's Reem? So we've learned to balance that there are places for each and every one of us. We all have our strengths and our weaknesses. So this challenge of trying to prove I can do this, I can do this, was one of the hardest challenges until I've grown and evolved to someone now, I'm like, I don't need to prove anything. If I don't want to lift that, I won't lift that. And that's okay. It doesn't make me weaker. It doesn't make me someone that needs to find a way to make it work. No, we just find someone else who can do that particular part. And that brings in collaboration. Because why does one person need to do it all? Countries tribes, communities, it's not one person can do it all. It's the collective. It's that interdisciplinary team. So it's not about having all women or all men. It's having that mixture. And one of the challenges I'm finding right now is still after, I would say, 12 years of diving in Bahrain, just Bahrain, and working just in Bahrain, I'm yet to meet another woman marine biologist. And it gets very lonely, you know? <laughs> and I would love to see other women marine biologists coming into this field, young people wanting to do this, you know? Because it's not only about also the gender aspect of women. It's also, we're going to face a generation gap. And do we want that? Of course not. Because with generation gaps, we lose a lot of details of our her heritage, because we will be history tomorrow. And if we don't document this now, we don't pass on our local knowledge, we will lose a lot. Going through these different challenges made you create a platform to support other women who want to work in this field, right? What was it? 
Yes, uh, for a very, very long time, actually, um, since I would say 2015, I've been wanting to build a network for women in the Gulf, in the GCC region, that work in marine biology or in general the environmental science so we can support each other. Because sometimes I face, um, say, a challenge and I need help. And even in Bahrain, there are not many marine biologists. So to be able to discuss this, it's very, very difficult. And yes, I can reach out to someone in Europe, yes, I can, but I don't want to. Because that person might not have worked in this region. So solving the problem will not be that easy because they have no idea what the region is like. So I thought, I'm sure there are other women in the Gulf in the same field who are also struggling, who might be looking for someone. So I decided to launch the Gulf Women in Environmental Science Network. And in the beginning, I thought, okay, I need funding. I need to have a workshop. We need to do a call for applications. We need to you know, bring people into the same room, have a workshop, decide what our vision is, what our mission. Because again, I didn't want to be that one person putting the, 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 all the laws and the principles and all of, of a network representing a region. No, I wanted a collective because I really don't believe in just me doing things or someone else solely doing things because the burden on that person is not fair, you know? The collective is stronger. And so I used to go out. I sent emails, sent proposals, everything. From 2015 uh, all the way till COVID, didn't achieve anything. People thought, Reem, your idea is nice, but I don't think it's that important. If I was like, okay, let's try, let's try. When COVID hit and the world went virtual, I thought, after working in the Seychelles, in Indonesia, in South Africa, in Madagascar, did I not learn anything? What did I learn? What did I say my two lessons were? You can do so much with little resources and with a community. It's your people that will make it work. And I thought, why chase behind that funding? Why wait for someone to tell me your idea is good and let's support this? Did anyone tell you your idea of being a marine biologist will be good? Of course not. I was told, you know, a lot of people told me, Where are you go what are you going to do when you graduate? I remember this as a teenager. You're going to work in the fish market? Ah, oh, no one's going to marry you because you won't know the, the difference between the smell of bukhur and the fish. You know, the, the comments you would get from people were things that I was like, okay, let's see, okay. Then what, you know? And so I thought, okay, well, bring your lessons, channel the wisdom that you've collected through all of these journeys, the mentors I've had, the people I've met. And I thought, let's do a call on Instagram and online. My name is Reem Al-Ma'alla. I'm a marine biologist. It's a bit lonely here. If you're another woman in the Gulf doing something similar to me, hey, get in touch. And believe it or not, I put up the post. Not even 24 hours went by. I got over 50 emails with women from the Gulf, from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from Kuwait, from um, the UAE. You won't believe, like, the entire GCC countries Women were messaging saying, I thought I was the only one in this spot. I'm a marine biologist. I do mangroves. I also found a lady, an Emirati lady, who's an entomologist. So her specialization is insects, which is amazing. We have no woman entomologists in Bahrain, you know? So if there's a question about entomology, I can reach out to her. 
And then I sent the connecting email with the mailing list, put the name together, and now it's growing. It's a growing community. Amazing. Reem, one last thing from you to us, to the environment, and to heritage. One last thing for all two. Well, you know, I always believe if you're going to take one thing and one thing only when it comes to heritage, you have to take the entire package, and that is cultural heritage, natural heritage, and the architecture, which is your home. Putting them together, you have a home that can be sustainable and will sustain itself for the future. If you decide to keep only one thing and neglect the others, that is not sustainable. You will not only lose yourself, you will lose everything that you have. Thank you so much. It was amazing listening to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of our podcast. And we'll see you again in another episode of My Heritage Podcast. My Heritage Podcast from the Arab Regional Center for World Heritage.